Welcome to a long overdue episode 25 of Around the Jewish World with Tom Price. This episode has taken so very long because it's an introduction to several episodes about the Jews of France. But to understand the Jews of France, you have to understand what France is and what it isn't and what it has been over the past roughly 2,000 years. And that's an incredibly complicated undertaking, which I will do my best to simplify and streamline for you. But my best may or may not be good enough. So please bear with me as I try to, at the risk of offending some historians or some regional fanatics of different aspects of French geography, culture, whatever, I will try to be as even-handed and as concise as I possibly can be. So I'm going to start with an example, a small example, of why the history of France is so complex. It is in some ways similar to the histories of Italy and Germany in the sense that until modern times, none of those countries existed as we understand them now. Uh, There may have been some idea of Italy. There may have been a collection of German-speaking duchies and city-states. But there was no national entity known as Germany or Italy or France, for that matter. And part of the reason France is so complex is that it's really multiple countries, multiple ethnicities, multiple languages, which a strongly centralizing government has tried to pull together consistently since the French Revolution. Now, we'll start with one specific idea. This is a Talmudic method of going from an individual case to a general case. Let's consider the city of Marseille, or the two best-known cities on the south coast of France, Marseille and Nice, both of which were founded by the Greeks and both of which developed as Greek cities. Nice was named for the Greek god of victory, Nike, and Marseille was called Massilia in ancient Greek. It was, for many centuries, the biggest city in France. Today, it's only the second biggest city in France. And it was also, for many centuries, the busiest port in the entire Mediterranean. I think today it might be only the second busiest port, but it is certainly true to its more than 2,000-year-old tradition. It was founded by the Greeks in roughly 600 before the Common Era. And it continues to have, after many invasions and many different rulers, and the fact that it really wasn't incorporated into France until right before the Revolution, it continues to have an amazingly strong local identity. And at the same time, A lot of the Marseillais, the citizens of Marseille, were active supporters of the French Revolution. And as they marched all the way from Marseille to Paris, which is about the longest overland route you can take in France, they sang a song called La Marseillaise, which many of you will recognize or would if I could carry a tune. It goes, Allons enfants de la patrie. Okay, so that well-known tune is called La Marseillaise, The Woman of Marseille. And it's an indicator, one of thousands that you can put together into a complicated mosaic of how different cultures, different cities, different regions, different places contributed to the mosaic that is modern France. 
So again, at the risk of oversimplifying and possibly forgetting some group or some source of influence on the soul of modern France, let me say that very clearly France has always been torn between or among its different origins. Its Greek and Latin origins in the south was very much part of the Mediterranean world and part of the Roman world and part of Latin culture. And the language spoken as standard French today is definitely a Latin language. But it was also influenced by the Germanic world. It was, for a long time, the head of the Holy Roman Empire. And it was known in German as Frankreich, the realm of the Franks. And the Franks themselves, for whom France is named, were one of the Germanic tribes that constituted the barbarian world which destroyed the Western Roman Empire. But there's another aspect, actually several more aspects, that tear France in yet other directions. One is the sort of Celtic fringe, particularly in the northwest of France, in the Brittany Peninsula, where the language Breton is very similar to the language spoken in Cornwall in England, and other sort of Celtic redoubts in the southwest of the United Kingdom. There is also Normandy, of course, the scene of the famous D-Day invasion. And the Normans, who were originally Vikings from the far north of Europe, came and settled in northwestern France and exerted an increasing influence, both culturally and linguistically, in the crucial 10th and 11th centuries. So, Part of the result of these many different influences on French identity was the almost eternal, well, not eternal because Protestantism didn't come into existence till the 16th century. But from the time that Protestantism was born, there was a conflict in France, regional, political, cultural, and otherwise, between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, you'll hear more about this later in this podcast, but it's important to remember that one of the poles of all these different ethnic groups was a religious pole. Another one was a linguistic pole. Hard to believe, I know, but in spite of a strongly centralized government's best efforts for more than 200 years, linguistic variations still persist. And they're not dialects. It's not like, oh, he's got a southern accent. They are different languages. Certainly in Alsace and Lorraine, Alsatian is spoken, which is more German than French. In Brittany, Breton is spoken, particularly among older people. In the Southwest, particularly in the Basque country, the Basque language is spoken, which is not related to any Latin or Germanic language. And in the Southeast, Provençal is spoken. And there's still an active literature in Provençal. In some of the smaller cities of Provence, you will see street signs that are bilingual. You will see restaurant menus that are bilingual or sometimes entirely written in Provençal. If the restaurant specializes in Provençal cuisine, they're proud of it and don't feel obliged to describe it in French. So you have at least that many languages, not to mention the more recent additions to the pot, like all the people who arrived from North Africa during the past half century after the French left Algeria. They, many of them brought Arabic with them. So Arabic is another 
part of the linguistic puzzle in France. Now, it would be an understatement to say that France almost never corresponded to its current boundaries. Historically, it varied enormously. It was added to the Roman Empire as a result of the Gallic Wars that were fought between the years 60 and 50 BCE. Some would argue that it was those wars and the conquest of Gaul that really made Rome into an empire and not just a powerful young nation state. But whatever the case is, the Roman province of Gaul, which was called Gallia in Latin, included not only modern-day France, but also most of Belgium, Luxembourg, southern Netherlands, and bits of Germany and Switzerland. So it was a larger conquest than just modern France. But as you all know, every empire reaches its limits, and the Roman Empire was eventually attacked and destroyed, at least in the West, by a number of Germanic tribes who were collectively referred to as barbarians, but whose names live on in many contemporary place names. Those names you will recognize immediately. Burgundians, Burgundy, Lombards in Lombardy, Franks in France, the Visigoths, the Ostrogoths, and many, many others. All of these groups, including the Alemanni and the Belgii, had chunks of modern France, and they all contributed to the linguistic and cultural and culinary mosaic that constitutes modern France. So once the Western Roman Empire was destroyed by the middle of the 5th century of the Common Era, it was very clear and predictable that France would no longer continue to exist as one large political unit. It splintered the same way that the Western Roman Empire did. A large part of it became the Kingdom of the Franks, eventually. Another large part belonged to the Visigoths, and another large part belonged to the Ostrogoths. And then there were tiny fringe areas that belonged to other peoples, and some of the areas within these rather big chunks of territory, to which I just alluded, were never truly integrated with the rest of France. The first great figure in building modern France was a man named Clovis, who was king from 481 to 511 of the Common Era. He was the most famous of the Merovingian kings who started building modern France, also known as Frankreich in German, in the 5th century. He converted to Catholicism and began the very close cooperation between the papacy and the French crown that played such an important role in Western history. More on this later. The last of the Merovingian rulers, or dynasty, if you will, were called les rois feignants, which means the do-nothing kings, or colloquially, the lazy kings. The next dynasty that contributed to the building of modern France was called the Carolingians, and the father of the first Carolingian king was Charles Martel, who's the man who defeated the Muslims in a famous battle at Tours in 732. Now, the 8th century was the time of the great expansion of the Arabs into the West, and Tours is the furthest north and west the Muslims ever came, and it wasn't the entire 
Muslim army. It was a raiding party. So probable that France was never in great danger from this party. But Martel won fame far and wide, certainly throughout the Christian world, for having, quote unquote, saved Christian Europe from the Muslim menace. And this almost legendary status ensured that his son, Pepin the Short, on whom the musical Pippin is based, by the way, was the first man who was accepted as king of all the Franks. And Pepin eventually expanded the territory handed to him by his father and by the Merovingians and made the famous donation of Pepin that became the papal states in Italy. He won much of this territory from the Byzantine Empire that was suffering from raids and depredations at the hands of the same Muslims who'd been threatening France. And Pepin the Short was not only famous because he made this donation that created the Papal States in mainland Italy, but also because his son was a man named Charlemagne, who reigned from 768 to 814 and was crowned Holy Roman Emperor by Pope Leo III on Christmas Day of the year 800 in the Vatican. Now, this was the first attempt to restore or rebuild or somehow recreate the splendor and the territorial extensiveness that had constituted the Roman Empire. And Charlemagne was at least as good a military campaigner as his father and grandfather. And he vastly expanded the kingdom of the Franks, but it was no longer called that. It was called the Holy Roman Empire, and it acquired an increasingly German flavor. In fact, Charlemagne's capital was at a town in what is now Germany called Aachen, which was referred to in French as Aix-la-Chapelle, and is sort of in the borderlands, the big fringe area between, that kind of buffers the French-speaking world from the German-speaking world. So those buffer states are modern Belgium, Luxembourg, eastern provinces of France, to some extent uh, Switzerland, and northwestern Italy. And speaking of northwestern Italy, let's flash back for a minute to the city of Nice, which is relatively close to the Italian border, and which was, for many centuries, part of the Kingdom of Savoy. And the kings of Savoy are, in fact, the royal family of modern Italy. So if you open a phone book in Nice, you will find at least two-thirds of the names look Italian. And the reason for that is that they are. They're not recent immigrants or guest workers or anything else. The area that is now Nice was for centuries part of an Italian-speaking entity, one of those many microstates, called Savoy. So what happened to the great Carolingian Empire of Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire, which continued to exist on paper for another several centuries? Charlemagne had his son, Louis, crowned during his own lifetime. And at his death in 814, Louis took over the realm. But the old Frankish custom of dividing the king's lands among all his sons, now plagued the empire. As early as 817, the sons of Louis made a preliminary partitioning, which led to the usual wars and further partitioning. In each generation, one Carolingian was marked out as emperor, but by now it had become almost an empty title. In the confusing sequence of wars and treaties that followed, there's one significant incident 
that which shows it's something more than just the Frankish law of succession was at work. This is the Strasbourg Oaths of 842, of which we still have the text. Two of Charlemagne's grandsons, Louis the German and Charles the Bald, allied against a third named Lothaire, who had the title of empire. The brothers and their armies took an oath of alliance. The soldiers of Louis swore in a language that is recognizably German, and the soldiers of Charles swore in a language that is recognizably French. So here, over a thousand years ago, a France and a Germany were faintly emerging, and in between them, there was a zone of fragmentation that would be fought over by those two countries until very modern times. The Middle Kingdom of Lothaire, part of which is still known after him as Lorraine in French or Lothringen in German. Maybe one of the reasons that the empire of Charlemagne could not be held together was that the French and the Germans could not be held together, at least until the 1950s, when General de Gaulle and Chancellor Adenauer worked tirelessly to bury the hatchet and end a conflict that had lasted more than a thousand years. And this effort culminated in the creation of the European coal and steel community, which eventually became the common market, which eventually became the European Union. But the essential element of that development was burying the hatchet between France and Germany. And one last note before we conclude this first half of your introduction to French history. The rise of the Normans and the importance of Normandy in French history. So Normandy, as many of you know from World War II, is on the northwest coast of France along the English Channel, sort of facing England. What you may or may not know is that the Normans were originally Vikings who came to France in the ninth century, settled there, and built up a significant duchy or mini-kingdom that was actually much bigger than the heart of France itself. And they became powerful seafaring warriors. By the 11th century... The Normans were well on their way to building an impressive kingdom in Sicily, and in 1066, the Norman conquest of England made England a dependency of these Norman kings. Not only that, they gave us the language in which I'm speaking today, because our modern version of English is based upon a Germanic-speaking peasantry that had lived in England since Roman times, and the invasion of an aristocracy and a ruling class that were Latin-speaking or French-speaking, in fact, so that all our words that are abstract and have to do with justice and administration, like justice, like administration, like marriage, like ceremony, like court, all those words are pure French. They're even spelled the same. They're pronounced a little differently, but it's very clear where they come from. So the 11th century was significant for France and for the Western world for many, many reasons, not least of which was the Norman conquest of England. Also, the Crusades, which would forever transform Europe, were launched towards the end of the 11th century, and they were first launched at a place in France called Clermont. When we return for the next session, I'll try to conclude this introduction to French history 
by covering the next thousand years, hopefully a little bit more quickly than I covered the first 1500 years. Thanks for your attention. I look forward to talking with you again soon.